Welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. Today's guest is Poonam Mawani um, from Azuki Accounts. I got her on uh, because one of our clients just said to me, listen, if you want to talk about M&A, finance, buying and selling recruitment companies, then you just have to get Poonam on. She began her career in the recruitment uh, side of her career with Hamilton Bradshaw and James Kahn. Um, she did that for a number of years and then she ran finance for Spencer Ogden when they were going through their massive growth. She has been helping recruitment agencies with their finance, but also doing due diligence on major M&A deals for the past five years. So really interesting to get her perspective on things. And one of the things that, you know, I'm trying to kind of get to is where 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 she would fit into the whole ecosystem. So there'd be one of the things that we got to was that there was private equity who would have the money or public listed companies. They would then go to a broker. The broker would then go to somebody like Poonam. She would she would then do the due diligence and make sure it's all right for sale. But we've gone into this in much more detail on the podcast. So interesting world. Um, and if you are enjoying the podcast, please do reach out and let me know. Um, we have just built up our leadership lockdown community. So we have three different communities on the go at the moment for different levels of founders out there. We also have a supplier network. So if you'd like to be involved with that, just drop me a note on LinkedIn. And I'll give you more details. Have a great day. Welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. I'm joined today by Poonam Mawani from, how do I say your company name? Azuki Accounts. And why is it called that? Uh, because Azuki is a Japanese bean and we're bean counters. Okay. Um, well, look, thank you for, uh, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited to get into all this, uh, I suppose, Best way to start is just give us a brief summary of your background before we go into the really good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a qualified accountant, qualified in practice, uh, mainly within order and assurance, and then moved over to uh, corporate finance within practice. Yeah. So I was doing a lot of um, EFG funding applications for small businesses at the time, um, doing a few mergers and acquisitions, and absolutely loved it. I thought, oh my God, what was I ever doing in order? This is the calling in life. Um, unfortunately, it was just as the recession hit, so probably wasn't the best time to be in corporate finance. Yeah. Um, and I was watching Dragon's Den one day, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great working for one of these guys? Um, and at the time, I wasn't choosy. I sent my CV and a covering letter off to all of them. Uh, got a few very polite rejection letters back. Um, and I guess the short story is I started working for James Kahn, who was on the panel at the time, um, working at Hamilton Bradshaw. So it was actually a, um, a joint venture company called HB Rider, but part of the um, Hamilton Bradshaw group. Um, and there I looked after all of the SME recruitment businesses in their portfolio. Uh, when I started, there were four companies in the group. When I left, there were 14. Okay. Um, so yeah, that was how I ended up in recruitment. I fell into it. Yeah. The, the one um, dragon who, who opens up has to be the recruiter. We'll, we'll, we'll welcome you in with open arms for sure. Yeah. 
We'll take uh, anyone. What were those? The, what was that like? Because that was being crazy, being involved in fourteen startups at the same time. Yeah, I mean, some of them weren't quite startups. They had been going for a while, but had reached that limit of what they could probably do themselves um, in terms of the owner managers. Um, it was a, a massive learning curve, you know, going from practice into industry and and doing things that the Hamilton Bradshaw way as well was, you know definitely a massive learning curve um there were things that i experienced that i you know i probably would never have even dreamt of which was great um an example um you know i i was pretty much put on the board straight away so there i was sitting in meetings with these owner managers saying you know this would be an amazing investment for you come and join us yes you're giving up equity for nothing um, but you're going to get all of this support. We're going to help you grow. And those are kind of the commercial conversations that you would never normally get exposure to. Imagine if you, you know, you'd left practice and gone to work at, I don't know, Tesco's back office. You would just be a number in a huge organisation. And here I was getting real commercial experience, which was amazing. One of the things that probably founders always ask is, how do, like, in those groups, how do they decide when you're allowed to hire the next hire how does that happen from a, from a numbers perspective from you going okay my spreadsheet says you're healthy enough let's make this happen is it on projected income or is it on money already banked no it should always be money that's already banked so invoiced out business um and the main ratio is going to be your payout ratio and that is ultimately how much you pay your sales team versus how much gross profit they generate for you um, and you want it to be around 40%. Um, and I wouldn't just look at it in a month in isolation. I would look at it in a period of time um, mm. or by a team in total, because you're always going to get some, you know, big billers and some good billers. And actually what you probably want is a lot of just good billers, because actually they're the more cost effective ones rather than the very expensive comm schemes, high big billers. Mm. Um, but ultimately, if, if a team or a person is consistently doing below 40%, that would trigger probably a new hire into that area. Um, if they were consistently greater than 40%, it may highlight training issues, it may highlight performance issues, um, or things that need to be addressed. It might just be that they're very new and they need a bit more time to kind of get up to speed. But at least if you know what, those, what the reasons are, you can work with them. So always look at payout ratio. And when they were presenting business plans, were, uh, were you brought into that stage of the cycle? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, always look at the impact on the figures, um, not just on sales and what they think they're going to achieve, um, what, what gets filtered down to bottom line, how much cash is needed in order to do this new venture. Because, you know, somebody could say, you know what, I think the next thing is, what is going to be amazing for us. Let's go and set up a whole new division. And what we need is 10 new grads and we're going to train them in this area and we're going to let them loose in this new division with one experienced management um, yeah, management person mm. and then i'll say great you're going to run out of cash in three months time because 10 new hires and an expensive experienced recruiter makes you run out of cash so you might want to rethink this um, so there are lots of things that you need to look at was there an initial plan to be a jumble sale to have like like every different type of recruitment firm under the one umbrella um i think that they wanted synergies they definitely wanted synergies but 
ultimately it depends on opportunity opportunities as well and if there were some businesses that came along that didn't necessarily fit in with their mo but they saw an opportunity with them then i think they would take it that's what you call magpie syndrome um i've got yeah. a i've got a real severe case of that very much so yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, i could talk to you all day about recruitment entrepreneur but i'm not going to um perhaps we'll do another one at a later stage you uh, you went from there on to another household name is that right I did so I left um, Hamilton Bradshaw and went to Spencer Ogden as um, finance director there and joined them on 18 million turnover left them a couple of years later on 50 million turnover and opened up eight international offices um, and grew the team out to, to you know 14 in effect 14 in my department so yeah, yeah, what great, great journey. What what year did you leave? Two thousand and thirteen. Wow, what timing, hey? Good timing, right? Because they 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 absolutely yeah. crashed. In they, six months later, they crashed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oil I, price hit rock bottom, and we all, we all crashed. Uh, anybody like I was in Calgary at the time, and I just got a job in Calgary, and like. The, the city just basically stopped so I, I can't imagine what that would have been like yeah so, amazing timing so that led you that led you to set up your own business yeah well after Spencer Ogden I went to do consultancy I was very pregnant at the time anyway I'm not a stay-at-home mum um I love my I have three children now but you know, I love my children to pieces but I'm also Good at what I do and happy to do what I do. Mm. Um, my first, I, I when I left Spencer Ogden, I took on a project to help a business in-house when they were previously outsourced, and they were at the right time to hire a team, train them, and, and bring everything in-house. And the go-live date for this new project was three weeks um, before my due date. And I'm oh, sorry, a week before my due date. And I thought, oh, you know, fine. First always comes late, no problem. Well, my first came three weeks early. So I was there with a one week old baby in my arms in the office on the go live day, doing everything and making sure that everything happened. Um, so to say I'm a stay at home mum is a bit of an understatement. Um, saying that, I've got three kids now, all boys, lots of fun. And I kind of went on to do lots lots of consultancy projects. So uh, lots of uh, due diligences for private investors that were looking to acquire businesses or do joint ventures with people. So within uh, the recruitment sector? All within recruitment, all within recruitment. So all, all this time you're starting to add strings to your bow. And, and <laughs> yeah, and it's all, it's all experience and it's all, you know, different, different things that you're learning and, um, and, and different ways of seeing the same problem, which was yeah. fascinating. Um, I guess the last employment role, traditional employment role was Milestone Operations. So I joined them in 2015, early 2015, and I joined them and they had some big issues and the managing director at the time was Louise Rayner and she's like just don't know what's going on here there's something that's not quite right and I need somebody to come in and get underneath it and I joined and within my first week I realized that they had a hole on their balance sheet 
that went all the way down to bottom line um, and uh, was causing them the big cash flow issues. So um, we, we fixed all of that, got them through the audit, um, resolved all of the, the issues, made sure everything was streamlined and actually they went for a sale and they sold to Staffline PLC at the end of that year. Um, and then it was on my earn out from them where I thought, what do I go and do next? Do I go back into big recruitment, private equity, go and do it all again? And actually what I realized in that time was what I loved about my career today was working with owner managers, people that were really passionate and driven about what they did. And I saw a lot of myself in, in what they'd done. So I bit the bullet and started up Azuki accounts very early on 2000, in 2016. So we've been going for four and a half years now um, and yeah, literally started off on my own from home doing nothing and now have a team of 12 working from an office. So yeah, I'm quite proud of what we've done. Yeah. And for anybody's listening, what you do is varied and it's, 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 it's relatively complex. Um, walk me through the three key elements of your business. Um, I guess the main the main revenue stream is um, outsourced finance function. So for SME recruitment businesses who don't warrant their own in-house finance department, they could outsource to us and we would do everything for them from paying yeah, bill, yeah. credit control. Yeah, everything all the way through to statutory accounts as well. Um, the second revenue stream is project work. So for example, implementing um, a new invoice discounting facility, um, a new accounting system, all of those short, sharp projects. And the last revenue stream is pure consultancy. So I'm portfolio finance director, as is my fellow business director. Um, and we kind of have um, a few clients that we are, you know, once a month, a couple of times a month, their finance directors attend board meetings, mentor um, an existing finance team that may be there in house. And we also do a lot of um, like M&A work as well. So we have some private um, or big companies that we work for that when they, when they find potential acquisitions, we would go and do the due diligence for them to then acquire them. Okay. That's quite a lot, hey? Um, yeah, keeps us busy. So you handle the accounts of something. I, I take it you come in and you do the strategic piece, then you handle a lot of that off, and that's that frees you up then to go and be the the project rainmaker fixer type. Yeah. And then you get your interest level and you get your entrepreneurial stuff from the M and A. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely what I enjoy the most. Um that's not to say we're not heavily involved in the day-to-day -day side of the business as well. We are, I think that's a control thing for me. I have yeah. difficulty letting go. <laughs> but I suppose the first stage, the, uh, the outsourced finance function, that keeps your cash flow going yourself and you can project your own revenue. And then the project stuff is, is, a, is like wins that you get like for extra stuff. And then you get the real big hit and stuff on the M&A. So you've really you've got a great wee business model there. Um, Walk me through, because I had Philip Ellis on, um, and I'm trying to get on. I'm trying to understand this M&A world. And one of the things, the more I speak to people like you, the more I feel like it's a lot more simple than people um, people let on. And I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there, and the complexity stuff really is the the, the qualified financial accountants. That go in and do all the DD. It, what, what, 
how do you see the deal? Ha how does a deal normally happen and where do you come into it? Um, there are lots of different scenarios. I would say they're probably the most, let's go with one example. Yeah. Is a business owner approaches a corporate finance broker or advisory firm, so similar to Philip Ellis. Yeah. Um, and what there's he does like three of them in the UK, isn't there? There's like three primary ones. Yes, I'd say so. Um, in, in the recruitment space that really are kind of known for what they do. Yeah. Three or four. And um, so before you jump on to the next bit, in your eyes, what do they do in that, in that sequence? If you're just to give it a real simplistic overview. So, so if, there are, if they are acting for the seller, then it's in their interest to badge up the selling business in the most best way, in the pos best possible light. Okay. They want to make them seem you know, that they've got loads of opportunities. Anyone acquiring them still has lots of opportunities left in that business. Because if they're in a very saturated market, then there's not much anybody else is going to want to buy them to do with them. So they're going to make them seem that they've got lots of opportunities, show, um, mm -hmm. show, show them. In it. So they're going to do lots of visuals, lots of financial analysis on kind of their current numbers to make them look great. And then understand what's unique about them and then go and approach lots of different potential buyers who may be interested in buying them. And would, would they then, would they probably look at quite a few and go, actually, you're not ready. Um, here's a non-executive director on the recruitment side to come in and here's somebody like yourself to come in. Yeah, I, I would hope so. I would hope that they have honest conversations. I guess one of the battles will be, um, aligning people's expectations with what they could sell their business for. There are many business owners that I've met that think that they could sell their business for 10 million pounds tomorrow. Yeah. And then actually when you look at their numbers and you look at the potential opportunities that they have, you know, they're more closer to 2 million. Really yeah. than 10. So then if someone's, you know, coming to put them an, an offer to buy their business and they're saying, I'll, I'll buy you for 2 million. They're like, oh, that's an insult. I can't believe it. My business is worth 10 million. Yeah. I would hope that the, the Philip Ellis's of the world will, will have a, a conversation with them and manage their expectations. Okay. As we all have to do, like it, it sounds quite similar to the role of a recruiter to, no, you can't have the most amazing finance director who's done it all before, got 50 years of experience, loads of M&A activity, and you're only going to pay them 25 grand a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that stuff. Um, so, so, so then what happens next in the, in the sales cycle of this whole thing? Um, once they find a potential buyer who's interested, they will probably sign non well they should be signing ndas and non-disclosure agreements and then they might ask for some initial information so it will be top level stuff most of the names will be blanked out so no one will know any client names contractor names or anything like that but it's more high level just to kind of get underneath the business and understand whether it's a business that they want to buy mm. once they're keen they would then do a um, heads of terms offer so uh, you know kind of a, a, an offer um, on what they want to pay, how they think it will look like, how much money they're going to get up front versus in tranches potentially, um, and, and how long the earn-out period will be. Um, once everybody's happy with that and that's all been signed, then you go straight into due diligences. So um, there are lots of different ways you can do this. Uh, the seller can appoint their own um, 
people to do it and that's what we often do we're appointed by the sellers um, occasionally we've been appointed by the buyers um, where we would in effect have a checklist of information we would go through it it would involve a site day where we would go and speak to the, the owners and key people if they are involved obviously at this stage they're probably not going to want to tell the team that they're looking to sell so it's usually just with the owners okay. um, Everybody's going to see this podcast and they'll know whenever you turn up at the office. <laughs> I do other things as well. Yeah. You're, doing, you're just doing the accounts. You're just doing the accounts. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, you know, see, see how you guys do stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, you might have to blur out my face like they do in the news. So, <laughs> so while you're doing the DD stuff, yeah. um, what red flags are you looking for? There are lots of things uh, that I would say are key things that we could go for. So one of them would be holiday pay. So if they've got a large number of PAYE temps, are they accounted for holiday pay correctly? Um, cut off, so at the end of each month, are they um, cutting off the month correctly? Because with large volumes of contractors, that could swing your numbers quite significantly. Um, also, if they're matching correctly. So for example, in a, in a recruitment business, you tend to process pay and bill a week in arrears. So are they bringing the right weeks and timesheets into the right period? Mm. Um, but yeah, lots of things that we would pretty much go, go for. Is there, is there much stuff from their own internal staff that you look at as well? There might be some, with, with staff, the key thing is whether you've got some underperformers in there or some efficiencies that you can do. So particularly the, the buyers that I know, they are massive on automation tech systems. So they're looking for bad systems. So bad as in, you know, and things that aren't efficient. Can they go in, implement their technology and in effect cut out headcount? Because if they can do that, you make that profit straight to bottom line instantly. So what are the opportunities for them to come in and use as much technology as possible? Because actually that's going to be really attractive for them. Yeah. Where do you see deals falling over? Um, the sales considerations, so how much they think their business is going to be worth, how much they can get up front um, is probably the main reason. 90% of the time let, is because of let, that. Let's jump, let's jump into the valuation piece. Now, this is the bit where every recruitment founder thinks they know it all and they all give me different answers. Um, they're like, yeah, it's a, it's a six multiple, uh, it's a 12 multiple. Um, it, 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 uh, so what, how, what's the multiples out there generally that you know, you've seen historically and has that changed in COVID? Let's talk temp, perm and a hybrid of both. Yeah, and um, perm business will be significantly lower um, in terms of the multiple. Um, it's too patchy, the work. What you really want is a good mix of contract and perm in there. You want the contractor side of the business to cover all of your overheads and then perms of profit. That's, that's really what you want and what you're looking for. Um, in terms of multiples for, for temp and perm and mainly temp businesses, it's going to depend on what sector you're in and whether you're in a sector that has growth. Um, and there are sectors in the UK that are quite saturated. So if they have opportunity to um, broaden those sectors, you're more likely to get a higher multiple. Um, I would say for good, solid contractor businesses, you're looking at anything from 
three to four times up to maybe eight, eight to nine. Um, but it depends. You've got to you've got to have every single box ticked and make sure there are no skeletons in your closet. That's your job. It's my job to find them. Yeah. And would you ever would you ever uh, match together like a perm? Like say if it's a somebody's a perm only business and you you come you're thinking oh well, maybe I'll add that to that contract business or vice versa and increase the multiple and put it together for a better deal does those type of things happen um i've seen people try to do it and there is a massive problem with doing it and the problems are the owner managers so when you merge two companies who's going to be the boss because they all want to be boss and yeah. um, no one wants to say you know what i'm out you know because actually they they still both need to be present and involved in the business to make sure that everything works well and they grow. Yeah. And secondly, culture is a massive issue. And, and all of the big businesses that have acquired other businesses will know that's probably one of the biggest friction points on yeah. acquiring businesses. Um, just let me jump you back a little bit. When you talk about the money up front on, in terms of that multiple to what yeah. gets paid on the, on, on the, on the earn out, walk me through what happens what the expectations are and maybe where <laughs> it goes wrong yeah um so let's just do simple numbers imagine if somebody sold their business for 10 million pounds amazing yeah when you see that when they you know know that that kind of number is is happening bearing in mind that you're going to have to pay tax on that 10 million pounds so really it's not really 10 million pounds it's significantly lower yeah. um but, but let's just say that you were to get five million um, and other shareholders and taxes and all of that came into play. With that five million, what they really want to do is spend five million on day one. And yeah. they want to buy their houses, buy their nice cars, go on lots of holidays, wonderful, enjoy life. And that's why not, right? When you've yeah. worked really hard for your business, why not? Issue being um, cash is probably one of the biggest reasons why they don't just give you five million pounds in one go. Because how do they raise five million pounds? Not everybody has five million pounds. Even these private investors, they don't have a bank balance with five million pounds sitting in there. What they, and actually it's probably 10 million pounds, which is what they need to pay you. What they will probably do is use your business to leverage up some debt. So they might get a term loan. They might try and use um, availability from your invoice discounting facility to fund a big tranche of it. And then what they want to do is out of the future profits, because they can convert a bit more down to bottom line with their synergies that they think that they're going to have. Um, they want to then use those profits to then pay you out for the rest of it. So that's ultimately the reason why they do that. Um, I've seen some earnouts linked to the, the company's performance to make sure that the owner managers are still kind of semi-involved and making sure that you know, end clients are happy, they're not going to pull their business away from them, um, or that they achieve the numbers that they said that they were going to do in, in um, forecasts. That's mm. less and less so now. I think, you know, investors are realising actually, you know, how to keep those people motivated when they can't make the business decisions. It's very difficult, but it does still happen. Um, but ultimately, it's down to cash and where, when they can afford to pay you in those tranches. Yeah, I've had Alex Elliott from... Uh, Rice Ventures and Liquid Personnel on a couple of times and I think he managed to get out quite quick whenever they sold and it was they managed to have a bit of distance between themselves and the business and prove that and have the right structures in place. Is that rare 
for that to happen? Is it is the norm that somebody ends up staying for another three years, five years? And is that different if it's a private investor to a PE? Um, I would say it's very rare that they actually stay. I did a sale where the owners wanted to stay in the business or one of them in particular wanted to stay. And they were like, oh, this is great. I can work with you. This is amazing. Six months in, they were like, I want out. Um, you know, it's not my business anymore. You do things in a different way. Um, it's just not how I envisaged it to be. And then they kind of like politely, can I back out of the room? Um, so I would say that that's less and less so. And, you know, people might think that they want to do it, but the reality isn't what they expected. Yeah. So um, the, talk to me a little bit more about the PE side of what you do, because that's kind of the interesting piece where you're starting to, to, to get momentum. Um, in that world, you come in at which point? Because they, they, let's say if it's a private equity firm, they appoint you, then you appoint a broker, then then you do the DD? Or so we don't actually do much with private equity at all. Yeah. Um, reason being, all the big private equity and reputable companies will have their own teams to do DDs. That's okay. pretty much what they will do all day, every day. Um, so we tend to do a lot more private investors and big companies looking to, to buy businesses. Um, like a, a Walters wants to buy somebody in, uh, in some country and then you... You, you facilitate that in that way? Yeah. Well, imagine, uh, you know, let's say um, Huntress. So, you know, the, the owners of Huntress uh, sold out in, you know, whenever it was, 2008, um, sold all their shares, earned a huge packet. And yeah, they're like, actually... Set up starting May. Yeah. And right. um, Spencer Upton. Yeah. <laughs> and, and others, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they obviously have lots of cash. They don't necessarily want to go and set up another business from scratch. Yeah. Um, they may choose to invest in businesses and maybe take um, either take it all over and buy 100% of the shares or maybe acquire 50% in tranches and, and maybe, you know, yeah. have JVs and things like that. So lots of different ways. We're doing a lot of work for a tech investor not necessarily a recruitment agency, but a, um, a complementary business to the sector yep. who is looking to acquire lots of recruitment businesses. They have a particular MO. They look for businesses that are of, in a particular sector or of a different, uh, particular size. And if they find businesses that fit in with that, then they pay very good multiples because it's supply and demand. Um, but I think it's about finding somebody that's really the right fit for you. If you're still going to remain in the business, you mm. want somebody that's going to be the right fit for you that you can work with. All right. Well, that's us today. Panam. Thanks so much for uh, coming on. Where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you and who should reach out to you? Um, anybody wants to reach out to me, I'll chat to anybody. We're not cheesy. Um, even if it's a, somebody who wants to pick my brain, I'm more than happy to have chats with people. Um, probably best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I think I'm one of the only Panamawanis on LinkedIn. So look me up, um, send me a message and I'll get back to you. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you so much.